Galatians chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray, Father, that you would open the ears that you've targeted to receive this today. We all pray, Father, that we would all hear it and be made more wise, and I pray that you would guide all that I have to say in Christ. Amen. Amen. Do you have a favorite book of the Bible? If you don't, it's nothing to feel bad about. As a matter of fact, uh, I've had many favorites over the years. I've been a Christian almost 30 years now, and uh, the first few weeks, I didn't even know more books of the Bible existed other than the Gospels. I just fell in love with Christ. I couldn't get enough of reading the Gospels. My only Bible was a little New Testament that I kept in my back pocket in my camouflage utilities, and it was very thin, and I just had practically all the Gospels highlighted in yellow. I would just read it all the time. I was very useless at my work at the time, Uh, maybe all the time. I don't know. I wasn't very much of a radar repairman. That's what I was supposed to be doing. But uh, anyway, I just loved Christ. I I came to uh, Christ through the book of Revelation and the Gospels. That's pretty much it, and a little bit of Daniel, of course. And uh, then I started going to church, and I found out there's a whole lot more to the Bible. And uh, I was in a church of Christ, and they really liked the book of Acts. And so whereas I was always buried in the Gospels, they seemed to always be buried in the book of Acts. They were preaching many of their messages in it, and also their Sunday school class was oriented around it. But when I started going to Sunday school, I made the mistake of, asking who Paul was. It's like, he wasn't in the Gospels. Who's Paul? So they knew I was a newbie. (laughs) And uh, then, uh, and during that time, I probably was using a borrowed Bible, and it was a red Revised Standard Version, and I would highlight all of Paul's epistles because they were just beautiful. I had no idea there were more books in the Bible that were as great as the Gospels, and these were. And so I'm highlighting. I had all these colored markers, and I would just very carefully highlight in different colors. And I mean, that was just one beautiful Bible. I, <laughs> I, ended, up, I ended up giving it to a fellow, and I, at the time I thought, boy, am I, am I giving away something that I really will regret. But this is the only other Bible I had at the time, and this guy needed the Word of God, and so I gave him this Bible. And, I, and ever since then, I've always prayed, I hope that Bible survived, because I think it was really a blessing to whomever could have received it. But then... I got a real Bible. I got a man's Bible. I got a King James Bible. You haven't read the Bible till you've read King James, right? Because you don't understand what it's saying half the time, and yet you're going to read it. And so I read that King James Bible, and uh, then eventually, and this was, at the time, honestly, it seemed like years, but it was really a year and a half later, I came to the Reformed faith, and the seminary students who led me said, you've got to have a New American Standard Bible. So then there went the King James Bible. Now I've got this, new, uh, you know, this uh, New American Standard Bible, and I can't say it was a whole lot easier to understand than the King James. It's a little stilted, but I enjoyed it. 
But anyway, that's to tell you my history. And during that time, so I loved the Gospels. And then I loved Paul's epistles. And then when I got that King James Bible, I started reading the Bible, Genesis, on through the history. And I love the Bible history. I still love it. It's probably where my favorite books are now, and they have been for many years. Just love reading about the kings and all the battles. But uh, when I Googled favorite book, favorite Bible book, um, the first thing I have to tell you is this, and it's something that I really overlooked when I uh, talked on this a year ago down in uh, Lincoln. Um, some people don't think, as Christians, you should have a favorite book of the Bible. They think it's kind of like having a favorite of your children. And I say, well, what's wrong with having a favorite of one of my children? You know, Sometimes I say, after they've done something really wonderful, you're my favorite now. <laughs> And then, of course, whenever I get any of them alone, I sometimes take the chance to say, you're really my favorite. (laughs) But it kind of struck me as odd that people can't admit to having a favorite. Uh, But, you know, they have their reasons. But me, I love favorites. And so some of the people were bold enough on this page where people are saying you shouldn't have them to state them. Let me share a few. Uh, Revelation. It's scary. And so they asked, what's your favorite and why is it your favorite? So Revelation, it's scary. Jude, it's short. (laughs) That's a kid, perhaps, talking there that has to read a book of the Bible a day or something. And then Proverbs, it's practical wisdom that even a knucklehead like me can understand. (laughs) Very honest. And this one is the one I wanted to share today, Galatians, because that's the book that tells you how to get to heaven. And Galatians does that. And that's partly why many pastors, when they start at a new church, they'll always preach on Galatians because they want to make sure that their people are grounded in an understanding of the gospel. Have you ever heard this song? See if I can get it right. Ten little angels, all dressed in white, tried to get to heaven on the end of a kite. Kite string broke and down they fell. Instead of going to heaven, they went to nine little angels, all dressed in white. Has anybody ever heard that? Wow, no one's heard that. Wow, it's kind of like the the, uh, pseudo-cultural Christian version of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. (laughs) But but, but yet, I think it also portrays to a cultural Christian culture what getting to heaven is about, right? It's like you need to work at it. You have to grab that kite, whichever one is going to heaven, and hope that it gets you there. That's not what getting to heaven is like. And that's what the book of Galatians is all about. It's all about in disproving that naive view that people have of how they can get to heaven and giving you the real view, what the truth is. So there is uh, praise for Galatians throughout uh, time. For instance, see if you can tell me who said this. The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. This is like Jeopardy. Luther, very good. Luther loved the book of Galatians. It was his favorite. He also wrote a thousand-page commentary on it, as if just saying it was his favorite wasn't enough. He had to write this huge book on it. And that was his favorite book that he wrote, his book on Galatians. Uh, Galatians has been referred to the battle cry of the Reformation, the Magna Carta of religion, Christian religion, and the Christian Declaration of Independence. It is a book 
in 149 verses that captures the essence of Christianity and defends it from one of the major enemies of Christianity, works righteousness. Uh, Luther, for him, it was the beating heart of the Bible. If you rip out the truth of Galatians, that essence of Galatians, then you've ripped out the heart of the Bible. All you have left is this body that has an awful lot of truth, but it's no longer living. It's no longer able to give you life. So now the background on Galatians, uh, the, the W questions, who, whom, when, why? Uh, who wrote it? Paul wrote it. Paul wrote 13 books, and he declared to us and for everyone that he's the one that wrote them by always sta stating that very clearly. To whom was it written? We know it was written to the churches of Galatia. That's very, very clear. But there are major views as to what the churches of Galatia were. Uh, there is an ethnic Galatia that was in what is now kind of north-central Turkey, and there was a political province of Roman Galatia that was more southern. And the when it was written kind of is driven by which people he wrote it to, because on his first missionary journey, he visited those southern Galatians. And yet, he could have only visited the northern maybe on his second, and even then we don't have a clear uh, understanding of that from Acts because we don't really see him uh, addressing any of those churches. But still, there is this northern view, this southern view. The southern view, he probably wrote it after his first missionary trip, the second, uh, if it's to the northern, he probably wrote it much later, maybe after the second or even into the third, that type of thing. But uh, does it matter to us? You know, we're talking about a, you know, maybe three, four, five-year window here. No, I don't think it matters to us right now. It doesn't affect anything that's critical to our understanding of Galatians. But it's interesting. I, I, I enjoy it. I know Phil does, doesn't he? Okay, now, what does matter to us, though? is why. Why was it written? Why did Paul write Galatians? And I believe the answer has to do with the fact that it was the beating heart of Christianity, and it was that beating heart that he feared for the life of. It's like cardiac arrest, right? Isn't that where your heart stops? So Paul was fearful that the Galatian church was going into cardiac arrest. That heart was no longer beating. People had killed it. And he was sending this epistle to jolt them back. And I believe he, when you read his words, that's exactly what he was doing. Now, when you get to the sixth verse of chapter 1, you know this epistle is not like any other epistle Paul's written. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. The sixth verse Paul wrote this letter in haste. Paul wrote this letter in fear in part for these people. He has godly fear for these people's souls, and so he writes them. Now, the first five verses, though, when you read all of Paul's other letters, these first five verses can give you the clue that he's already very, very concerned. Every one of Paul's letters begins the same way. He begins with a greeting. And almost all of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, has it demarcated as greeting. And yet every greeting begins with three things. He introduces himself, he addresses his audience, and he blesses them. So he does those three things in every one of his letters, all 13 of them, from Romans to Philemon. Every one of them, even the short one, even Philemon. So now he does this all the time, but let's talk about this. 
When Paul identifies himself, this is what he does. I'm going to read you from Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians, those three. I'll read you his identification of himself. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Those are the three books I mentioned, now Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, if this was a Sesame Street illustration, I'd ask you which one doesn't belong, which one is not like the others, and it's this last one. He's very different in this introduction of himself here. This is the only one of all of his 13 intros that's kind of negative. It has the word not in it. He's defending his apostleship right there in the greeting. He's only five words into it, and he's defending himself. Now, he also identifies his readers. So let me read you some introductions he gives to other churches. Romans, Ephesians, and Philippians. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And now Galatians. To the churches of Galatia. That's it. He's very cool, very aloof. He doesn't want to dilute what he's about to rebuke them with by glad-handing them, in a sense, remotely. He's very, very cool at this point because he wants them to pay attention to what he's saying. And he spent time there. It isn't like he's unfamiliar with them. He didn't even go to Rome yet when he wrote this, and he's very familiar with them. Now, again, he blesses his readers. Surely the blessing can't be any different, but it is. The blessings of Paul are remarkably similar. Uh, he has essentially two blessings that he gives in all 13 of his epistles, and they go like this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. He writes those exact words in three letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes those exact words in nine letters. And then he writes this in Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is his blessing. So again, very different. The only letter in which it's like this. Galatians is entirely unique in the greeting. And so you can therefore expect the letter of Galatians to be entirely unique in its application. And I believe it is. Galatians is a very simple book. Uh, Paul just hammers and hammers on two things only. Uh, I love living in the Midwest. And... Uh, I've, I grew up in the Midwest, in Ohio, and, and then I was in California for 10 years, and then I've been back here. But the thing I think I'm, I love most about the Midwest is the storms. I mean, or at least it's one of the things. In California, you just don't get storms like you get here. Uh, Zaya took a picture last week at work with his phone, and you got this storm rolling in, and it's just clear skies here, and this just incredible, and it was like a square. It was weird. It was like there was this square uh, storm coming at him. And uh, we've all, I think, seen these unusual things here. Uh, when I actually did this, prepared this last summer, there was, a, there was a huge storm that had just rolled in days before. 
and I was downtown and I was debating whether to leave and I'm looking and I'm in a parking spot that's right under the interstate and I'm like, well, I'm safe here, but you've got that yellow green sky. So I uh, made the mistake of getting on the interstate thinking, well, you know, I'll, oh, a mile later I'm crunching at a snail's pace in heavy traffic through hail that is making all of our cars slip around. And so the storm had hit. That's verse 6. Verses 1 through 5 were me leaving work and seeing the storm. Oh, it's not that bad. You know, get to my car. I'll get out of here. No, I didn't. God didn't have plans for me to get out of there. And that's how Paul is. That first five verses, that greeting are the rumblings of the storm. That's, that's that greenish sky that you see. And then, boom, six comes down on you. I marvel that you have abandoned the gospel. And so he's very upset with them, and he lets them know it. He lets them have it. Now, the Galatian greeting is unique in another way. We've already alluded to it, but I just kind of want to clarify why. Because it summarizes the entire book. You can meditate on the first five verses of Galatians, and when you've read the whole book, you haven't learned anything substantively new. The major premises are right there. He defends his apostleship, and he defends the gospel from attack. And then the rest of the book does, does it in just much more detail. So now why does he defend his apostleship? Is this just Paul being thin-skinned? We have to ask that question. Or is it right for us to defend ourselves? Shouldn't we just let others defend us? Shouldn't we just allow the truth to stand on its own? Why are we so worried about having to defend the truth from attack? Especially when it is just us. Paul's defending himself as an apostle. Well, it is important sometimes that we do this defense. And I'll go on to state why and how that unites with the second point. His defense of himself is nothing more than a defense of the gospel. But I already talked, and you can see the energy. You feel the energy of a storm, don't you, before it hits. And after it's dissipated, you can almost feel the absence of that tension that had existed before the storm. And let me turn to Galatians 6. 17 and 18. These are the last two verses of the book. And listen to this. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He's done again what he did in the greeting. He's clarified who he is, and he's blessed them but it sounds like he's exhausted. He's poured himself into this letter, and he prays that it has had the effect that he needs it to have on these people, but he's whipped. He had all this energy six chapters ago, but now he's whipped, and you can tell it. You can see the change. So now, the thing I have to ask about this, him defending himself, first, before we get to his defense, is what is an apostle? We have apostles nowadays. The church isn't meeting, but there's a fellow down the hall that periodically meets in this building that calls himself an apostle. So are there apostles today? In a simple way, in a kind of a, a challenging way, I would say, yeah, there are apostles today. But in another way, the way in which we're all thinking about it, no, of course not. There are no more apostles. There were only those that founded the church. So let's get into a little more detail there. First... The reason I bring that up is that the word apostle is actually used for people in the New Testament 
that are not the 12 apostles. Did you know that? And it actually, even in my version, New King James, it even uses the word apostle in the New Testament for this. And let me go there. In Acts 14, 14, it says, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. Now, the question I have for you is, who's not the apostle apostle in these two men, Paul and Barnabas? Barnabas wasn't an apostle. So why is he being regarded as an apostle here? It's very clearly stated, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude. Well, in the Greek, you would see apostle. And yet, let's turn to another one. 2 Corinthians 8.23. 2 Corinthians 8.23, we read this. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So see, this verse here includes the same Greek word that the one I just read did. Then why don't I read the word apostle? Because they're messengers. They're messengers, just as the apostle is a messenger. But so now we have to get a little uh, more uh, clarifying here and say, okay, well, by context then, we have a word that's being used in multiple contexts, that's being used with two definitions. And so where do you know the one applies and the one doesn't? Well, like, you know, you just have to figure it out. Just like I had to figure out all those difficult words in King James many years ago through the context. Oh, what does a begat mean? Well, it's pretty obvious when you read those texts what begat means. So now, there are what I refer to as little a and big A apostles. And uh, we know that throughout time, people have not always used lowercase and uppercase to do what we now do very, very consistently by virtue of having systematized language as we've done in recent uh, centuries. But uh, I would discriminate between them by little a and big A. So the big A apostles were those that were chosen by Christ, they were trained by Christ, and they were commissioned by Christ. So CTC. Chosen, trained, commissioned. And let me read a little bit from Mark because very succinctly it's summed up there. Mark 3, verses 13 to 15, read this. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So you can see clearly all three of those. He chose them. He chose to train them, and then he was training them to commission them and send them out to do his work. So that is what a big A apostle is. And these 12, Jesus chose, including Judas. He was one of the 12. But then he, of course, was the one that was going to uh, turn him into the authorities and have him executed. And so then this new apostle was chosen, Matthias. And yet here we have Paul, who himself describes himself as an apostle, born out of due time. So Paul is the big A apostle, but we'll get to that in a little bit more. But uh, all of the apostles 
the eleven at that time, and then Matthias once he joined them, they were very, very recognizable by the early church and by the er early non-churched. Uh, even in the, in the uh, courtyard of the high priest, that servant girl recognized Peter. You're a Galilean. You were with him too. So anybody could kind of recognize who the apostles were, who those were that were closest to Christ. And then, of course, after, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, wow, then they're out in the streets, street preaching with authority, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so rapidly it became obvious to everybody that lived in Jerusalem who the apostles were. And until the persecution came, they were very public. But when the persecution came, they scattered, but not the apostles. Acts says that every one of the apostles remained in Jerusalem. And yet all of those that they, they had converted, all the people that were now filling the streets as the little a apostles, as the messengers of God, boom, they were kicked out of the nest, as it were. They were spread throughout the kingdom to start spreading the news elsewhere. Jerusalem had, had and retained the 12 apostles. So now an apostle is chosen by Jesus. So now was Paul chosen by Jesus? Of course. Let's go to Acts 9 where it's recounted. Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so we still have that in the New King James. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here he's chosen by Christ. And then the next one is what? Trained, right? And then the one after that is commissioned. And so you can see, I believe, in part, his commissioning right here. We don't get to the training part, but we'll get to that. But there is this commissioning. Look at verse uh, 15, where God is replying to Ananias' concern that this is the one that's persecuting the church. And he says this to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. So here you see his being commissioned. So we'll get to the training in a minute. So Paul was trained in Judaism at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most honored and, and memorable uh, of those times. He, he was, what, he, what did he describe himself? A uh, Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he also was trained by Christ. And if you look in Acts 9.22, later on in this chapter, Later on, he was saying he was confounding the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus was the Christ. So God rapidly took his training that he had through Gamaliel and made him into an effective witness. And yet also, just beyond where we are in Galatians, if you turn there, 
I'll start reading at Galatians 1.15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. It's during this three-year period that Paul is said to have been trained personally by Christ as an apostle. His three years in Arabia, where he's off by himself. He, he is converted, he is uh, chosen by Christ, he's commissioned by Christ, and then he's immediately trained by Christ. So I just wanted to show you that this is what Saul is having to defend. He's very different from the other apostles. Everybody knows who they are. Nobody knows who he is in his Christian life. They only know him as the attacker of the faith. And yet God chose him. God chose this man that was trained in the strictest of Phariseeism to be the one that really, I mean, through writing 13 books, he chose him as a preeminent apostle to help lay the foundation of the Christian church. He wanted someone who understood Jews, how they thought, and what they would do to retain their role of preeminence within Christianity. Because, see, he himself had the highest thing in Judaism, and he's sacrificed it for the sake of planting the Christian church. And so he's not going to let any of these Jews who are also helping him found the church who really don't understand this because they weren't in Judaism like he was in Judaism. And so he has to defend the new gospel, this kind of uh, uh, fulfilled Judaism. He has to defend that from them. And he does that. Oh, Galatians is a wonderful illustration of how well he does that, confronting Peter to his face. Peter, the apostle. I mean, Peter was the main apostle. But really, you see Paul supplant him as the book of Acts goes on in preeminence. So, Paul is a big A apostle, but why is it so important that he be recognized as a big A apostle? What's the big whoop about this? Because it was the prophets and the apostles that were the foundation of the church, as Ephesians 2.20 very clearly tells us. So Paul is defending his role and his right to be the ambassador of God who is planting the foundation of the Christian church in Christ. Christ is the chief cornerstone, and the truth that the prophets and the, and the apostles laid out became that foundation. And we all, since that time, are built upon that. Can you imagine how big that foundation must be for the church that God is building to stand upon that? That foundation has to be large. It has to be solid. It has to be powerful. And yet it was laid like that during that generation of those apostles. So we need to appreciate that, how seriously Paul was concerned about getting that foundation right. We know what happens if you don't get foundations right. They, they don't work. They don't support the structure you're building on them. So that's what he was concerned about. Paul himself said this, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. So he's not bragging. He's just stating the facts. This is what God called him to do, and he's going to do it. He's had a mandate higher than any other mandate could have possibly been given, and he is not going to allow himself to be dethroned as an apostle just because other people are wanting to restore Judaism to its former glory. 
So now, some things are worth fighting for, right? That's what we learned from this. What are the principles that we're learning? Some things are worth fighting for. And your reputation as a Christian is one of them if it's falsely attacked. Now, we might be rightly attacked, and we know this. We have sin in our life. But if you're being wrongly attacked, I believe we have not only the, uh, the uh, possibility, but the responsibility to defend ourselves or our brethren from false attacks. And that's the first lesson that we take from this. And the other thing is that part of the reason we need to defend ourselves and others is that we're soldiers. If we allow ourselves to be knocked aside like this, then we will not be useful in the battle that is to come. So you have to defend yourself and your reputation in order to remain active in the war. And don't some of us just see this as an opportunity to not be active in the war? Oh, well, they don't like what I'm saying, so I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing. Instead of tenaciously clinging to the battle and to the, the war that God has called us to, we're kind of ready for a break. And so we take the least hint of something like this where someone perhaps even in our own ranks is slamming us to walk away, to go lick our wounds, to go feel sorry for ourselves somewhere. But then you're not obviously doing what you need to be doing. You're no longer soldiering on the field. There's a time to lick your wounds, but not when you're self-pitying and feeling sorry for yourself and not defending yourself on the battlefield. Now, I want to give an illustration of this from one of my favorite movies, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, you have the beast fall for Belle, and as he comes to love her, he lets her go. If you love something, let it go, right? And so she's gone, and he's sad, and now all these villagers have come and attacked his castle, and Gaston is up there entering uh, Beauty, or Beast's uh, bedroom with his bow and arrow. And Beast turns around and sees him there, and he doesn't even care to defend himself. He just turns back around because he's lost all interest in life. He then is shot with the arrow. He screams out in pain. Belle is arriving. She sees him through the window, get this arrow, and he's crashing out through a window, and she calls to him. Then what happens? Has anybody seen Beauty and the Beast? You're all looking at me with this puzzled look. Okay. The kids have. And uh, so then he's just like, Bell is back, a reason to live. And he turns around and fights Gaston, and Gaston plummets to his death. And uh, the end. But see, that is the story of life. That's the story of Christianity. We are parts of such stories. We are to be tenaciously hanging on to this battle. And yet, at times, we're like the beast there. We're just feeling sorry for ourselves, and we're going to go away, and nobody really loves us anyway. Boo-hoo me. And how are you going to overcome that when you feel like that? You've got to go to God. You've got to go to God and say, God, I'm here for a reason. Here I am feeling sorry for myself. You know, David would just go to God over and over and over again when he was depressed or disappointed or, or uh, under attack. And yet, too often, we don't think to do that. We just don't um, think like David thinks because we're just not so accustomed to living with God as being the center of our world like he was. So now, Paul was a man who was chosen, trained, and commissioned by Jesus, and he did not allow his authority to be questioned. 
And what I have to tell all of you here who are Christians, who claim the name of Christ, you have all been made ambassadors of the truth. And so your reputation is a reflection of God's reputation. You owe it to God to defend the truth when you see it under attack. We know that there are appropriate ways to do this. We know there are even times when it's probably not best or wise to do this. Even God himself says that in scripture. But there are times when it's necessary and God will make you aware of these times when it's necessary. And be courageous. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You'll get embarrassed. You'll, you'll get uh, upset. Uh, you'll, you'll lose the verbal or physical battle. Uh, but really though, you then have your father's uh, approbation. He says, well done, my faithful servant. So Paul shows that we must defend ourselves sometimes, not to protect our egos, to, but to protect the truth. And you might have 99 people that just think it's really funny that you've lost face and can now stand to endure it. But you'll see people that will be persuaded, and they'll come to you secretly, perhaps like Nicodemus did to Jesus, because they don't want the disapprobation of the public. And yet, when they see you enduring it, they are emboldened at least to come to you and say, how can you do this? How can you overcome this type of opposition of the world? So when the world wants to shut us up, for instance, when an intrusive state wants to enter into our homes, to say, you must do this or that or the other thing with your children. We have an obligation to oppose them, not just to protect our rights, but to protect God's property. We are the ones who are watching over God's property, and he wants us to protect that property. It's not ours to give to the state. It's ours to protect from anybody who would want to do harm to them. If the state wants to silence us on the, on the Christian views, on homosexuality, on euthanasia, on abortion. We owe it to God as his ambassadors on this earth to defend those things, not again for our personal rights. It's for the fact that we are ambassadors of God. We do not stand in our own strength. We stand only in God's strength. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is the truth. You will either stand up for the truth or you won't. But if you stand up for the truth, it's for God's good, for the benefit of his kingdom. And yes, you might be blessed through it, but that's not the primary reason you do it. You do it because that's what you're supposed to do. Romans 4 says, let God be true. Uh, 3, 4 says, let God be true, but every man a liar. Uh, we rely upon God's word. So now we do not fight the battles for ourselves. We fight them for our Lord. And this is a battle to the death. I love the illustration that Gary gave earlier about, sure, you can fall down on that ship, but you're safe on that ship. You're not going to get tossed off into the ocean. That's us in the Christian kingdom. All of our battles do not lead to our uh, spiritual loss. They lead to our spiritual gain. So whenever possible, we are to live at peace with all men, right? But whenever necessary, we are to fight those very same people that we are to be at peace, in, at peace with, to stand up for God as his ambassadors on earth. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to be with us, to give us courage in times of testing, to equip us for the battle, 
We know that we don't always like being trained. We see it in our children. They don't always like their schoolwork. And yet, Lord, even adults can often uh, excuse themselves from the necessary preparation and training that you require of us. So we pray, Lord, please convict us of being lazy servants, if that's the case. Uh, Please embolden us to bring your word out into the public forum, to be attacked for it if need be, but, Lord, to say what is right, to do what is right, to defend what is right. We thank you for this example that Paul gave. Just in this simple greeting to the Galatians, Lord, he shows us that this is a worthwhile endeavor for your people. We ask you to be with us now and in the week ahead, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.